Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And it's Prospect Park Week. So on Monday's episode, we talked about how Brooklyn's Prospect Park went from an idea to a public green space that's often lauded as the greatest achievement of the Olmsted and Vox partnership. This year, the park is celebrating its 150th anniversary. And to help us look at its history and its importance in the community, we have three different expert guests to share their insights on the park. Our first guest is Charles Birnbaum, who is the president, CEO, and founder of the Cultural Landscape Foundation. And the Cultural Landscape Foundation is a nonprofit that helps people connect to the landscapes around them. Among the many resources that the foundation offers are city, regional, and national park service guides for cities all through North America, including New York. You can find out more about the organization at tclf.org. We'll give you that URL again at the end of the episode, and we will have it in the show notes, which, in case you've missed it, are now on the same page as the episode for newly released episodes on our website. Yeah. Uh, and Charles also worked at Prospect Park earlier in his career, so he has a really, really rich understanding of it as an integral part of Brooklyn's identity. So we'll jump right into that interview. My first question for you, Charles, is how do you think that Prospect Park has really shaped Brooklyn's identity and culture over the years? You know, this is a very interesting question because when I think about the park uh, shaping the city's identity, I would actually say that it mirrors the city. And let me explain what I mean by that. So when 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 I look at a landscape like Prospect Park, um, I look at it as a palimpsest, as a place that has layers of history. Um, and I'll come back to the Revolutionary War maybe a little later in this conversation. But if you think about the, the, the park itself and the design of the park beginning with Olmsted and Vox in 1866, um, you know, and in that period, it kind of, um, the city, of course, is much more rural at that time, Brooklyn. And um, the way in which the park meets the city is very rustic. You know, it was influenced um, by Andrew Jackson Downing, who was a great tastemaker, who, you know, probably would have designed Central Park and Prospect Park potentially had he not died in a riverboat um, in the Hudson River in 1852. So the first era is sort of the rustic period. It's sort of like, you know, a country outpost. Then you, of course, have um, the City Beautiful era, which is uh, very ever-present today, you know, when you see things like uh, Grand Army Plaza and the kind of Beaux-Arts designs like the Boathouse and all of the um, sculptures and memorials by people like Daniel Chester French and uh, Frederick McMoney's and others. And so in the same way that New York City was having the City Beautiful era, like a lot of great American cities after the World's Columbian Exposition, um, you know, the park echoes that. And then as you continue to move along, the park then moves into the WPA era, where it is a, it's very much about active use. And so as in the same way that we look at kind of suburban developments in the U.S. and everyone having their own backyard, well, cities had, you know, active parks with playgrounds and sports fields and, you know, a band shell, a zoo, all these things um, came in during Robert Moses' era Um, in many of the New York City parks, and it played out in a big way in Prospect Park between the 1930s and 1960s. And then, as a mirror of the city, the the park, like New York City, went through a period of decline in the 60s and 70s, 
um, until around uh, 1980 when the Prospect Park Alliance was founded and the Renaissance um, began for the park. And uh, the Renaissance was beginning in the city at the same time. And I would say that the work in the park has gained steam in the same way um, that the city has had a, a great renaissance. And, um, you know, that to me is kind of the interesting story where you have the rustic period, the Beaux-Arts period, active recreational decline, renaissance. It's the story of the park, but it's also uh, very much the story of Brooklyn in the same way. And in terms of Olmsted and Vox, how do you think Prospect Park compares to their Central Park design? Well, you know, I um, I may have mentioned to you when we saw each other the other time that, um, you know, in the 1980s, I was working on four of the five parts of the park that were doing historic landscape reports um, for things like the perimeter and uh, the, the Long Meadow. Uh, the Long Meadow was done by the late uh, George Patton, who was the landscape architect. The other four parts of the park were being looked at by uh, Anthony Walmsley and Patricia O'Donnell. And, um, you know, I remember we had a historian at that time who I believe might have lived in Brooklyn. His name was Al Fine, and he was a great landscape historian. Uh, he taught at Harvard. And, um, you know, I, you know, he used to bemoan at that time that, you know, people didn't know who Olmsted was. And by extension, people certainly didn't know who Calvert Box was. So I think, you know, specifically when you think about how does this park compare with Central Park, um, there's probably a little bit more Calvert Box here. Um, you know, there's a great um, doodle that was done uh, by Vox um, in 1865. And I remember when our historian, Joy Kestenbaum, unearthed this. And it showed you the, the idea for the park as we know it, its boundaries, um, was really um, something that Calvert Vox saw. And it was a great departure from the earlier plan by the uh, the engineer, Egbert Veal. So, so that was a big deal, first and foremost. Um, second, when we think about it in relation to uh, Central Park, I think the big thing here is connectivity. That Central Park was really created as a destination park um, for you know Manhattan, really, uh, more than anywhere else. Whereas I think when you look at Prospect Park, that Prospect Park was part of the Brooklyn Park system. So, for example, Eastern Parkway, which meets the park, uh, this is actually the first time in our history that even the term parkway is used um, and is created, if you will, by Olmsted and Vox um, for this project. You know, in addition, this idea of, of connecting as far away as the Brooklyn beaches like Coney Island, uh, the Palisades, uh, Central Park going across the East River. Um, you know, this was um, an ambition, a planning ambition that had never been tackled before. And so I think the one of the big differences between the two is Central Park was a great park in a city and Prospect Park was a great park in a great city that was conceived to be connected both within that borough of Manhattan, but also connecting all the way to Central Park. And I guess the, the last thing I would say about your question is when you just kind of look at the design itself. And, you know, Olmsted and Vox had learned a lot, um, you know, working on Central Park. Um, you know, but the 585 acres that are Prospect Park, I think what's extraordinary here is that um, compositionally there is a level of perfection here. Uh, the Long Meadow, for example, measures 90 acres. And when you, um, when I look at a landscape, I like to think about landscapes like Prospect Park in the career 
uh, body of work of Olmsted and Olmsted and Vox. And, you know, the Long Meadow, along with Central Park's Great Lawn, uh, Franklin Park in Boston, and Washington Park in Chicago, those are the four great kind of, if you will, country parks with a great big meadow. And I would say of all of those, the, the Long Meadow and Prospect Park is probably the most iconic. Uh, there's a reason why uh, Witold Rabinsky put that view on the cover of his book, A Clearing in the Distance. And you could say the same about Prospect Park Lake, 60 acres. I mean, that's kind of, you know, think about how big that is. And to be able to achieve a 60-acre lake in a city and then the ravine, 146 acres. And when you're in the ravine, you have escaped the city. And I think that's one of the great things about Prospect Park still today is that there are so many parts of the park where the city disappears. Uh, it's much harder to do that in Central Park with the scale of, of the buildings that surround that landscape. And although that has changed some in Brooklyn, um, there are so many places you can be in the park and you suddenly have this epiphany thinking, gosh, where have I gone? You don't realize you're still in Brooklyn. And so I think all of those things collectively uh, distinguish the park. Um, and I think the fact that Olmsted and Vox had been there before, both in terms of park making, but I would say also um, understanding the politics of park making allowed them to create something that words such as iconic and masterpiece are often used to describe Prospect Park more than any other Olmsted and Vox landscape. And you've answered this a little bit with uh, that really illuminating answer, but what else do you think sets this park apart, not just from Central Park, but other green spaces? Well, I would say one one of the things about um, the park is that it is um, it's truly a cultural landscape. That when um, we look at what a cultural landscape is, it is any landscape that is shaped by humankind. And it can be what's called a historic design landscape, e.g. the work of Olmsted and Vox. But it could also be a historic site um, because of an important person or event. And, you know, I just what I find sort of remarkable is that you could be in the middle of Brooklyn and you don't realize that there are cultural lifeways um, at the Battle Pass of the Revolutionary War playing out in New York City, let alone in what is now Prospect Park. So I think on top of all of the significance as a masterpiece of landscape architecture uh, and a world-class design by Olmsted and Vox and others that have also contributed to the park over time, that it's also a cultural landscape as a place uh, that saw uh, troop movement during the Revolutionary War. And so then, uh, again, this might, you have so many good tidbits. Uh, <laughs> um, do you think that is maybe the answer to this question or perhaps something else? What do you think is the most important thing for people to realize about Prospect Park's history? Well, I, I, you're right. I have to, I've touched upon this a little bit. And I, I would just say that, you know, when, um, when I was studying landscape architecture in the late 1970s, early 80s, um, you know, you have to remember in the 70s, all, 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 the Olmsted Renaissance was kind of just beginning. Um, Frederick Law Olmsted's own um, home and office studio in Brookline, Massachusetts, had only become a national park site in the 1960s, and it was designated. And, you know, the reality is that with modernism and other uh, approaches to design, that the Olmsted tradition, if you will, for the picturesque in places like Prospect Park um, had been forgotten. 
And it was really, you know, with the founding of the Central Park Conservancy in 1979 and the Prospect Park Alliance in 1980, um, you had, I believe it was the founding of the National Association for Olmsted Parks. There were major exhibitions at the Metropolitan and the National Gallery in Washington. And, um, you know, there's a reason why of the about maybe a little less than 2,000 uh, works of landscape architecture that are listed on the National Register about 200 of those were designed by Olmsted or his successor firm. So, you know, when I, what's remarkable to me is that there has been such a great renaissance for Olmsted and, and, and for parks like Prospect Park. Um, I think that what we can now do today is we can contextualize these. We can understand what makes Prospect Park one of the great Olmsted Vox landscapes. And I think that there are several things here. First of all, I think, you know, we now realize that there were three Olmsteads, <laughs> you know, that Olmsted's son and nephew, um, who was his stepson, um, continued the firm's tradition. Olmsted Jr. continues work well into, um, you know, the 1950s. And, you know, to some extent, the Olmsted brothers um, remain very involved in New York City uh, in places like Fort Tryon Park. But in terms of Prospect Park itself, when um, when I started looking at this landscape as a young student, I think that people thought places like Central and Prospect Park were acts of God, that somehow we just put a stone wall around it, we put some pretty buildings in it, and that it was there. And I think Olmsted and Vox, to their detriment at that time, made it look so apt and so easy that everyone thought just that. They couldn't imagine that it was a manufactured landscape in the same way that, say, Brooklyn Bridge Park or the High Line are today. And and that was to their credit, to create something. And it was, of course, uh, a resource that had 125 years to grow in, for better or worse, through sometimes through proper stewardship, other times through neglect. And, you know, I think in the 70s, people did think it was potentially an act of God. They had... Um, they had sort of a cultural amnesia that, that, that Olmsted and Vox had designed this. Um, and I think today when you see the park, what's so exciting for me um, when I revisit it and to see the park um, coming back to life. I mean, in the 70s, you know, benches had no slats. Um, viewing um, shelters were just um, literally slabs of concrete with no pavilion that remained. Perhaps it was lost to fire or arson or vandalism. That the park, you really had to squint then not to see the, the tree canopy in decline, not to see the graffiti, not to see the vandalism. And, you know, we forget that it took 25 years to build these parks and, or more. And it has taken the steadfast leadership of the Prospect Park Alliance, the Central Park Conservancy, and other groups throughout the country um, to bring these places back. So I, I wandered there a little bit from your question, and I think that I think the most important thing for people to see is I began talking to you about seeing the park as a mirror for the city, and I think the park is also a mirror for the culture. And, you know, one of the things that's exciting today is that when people go to the park, there is such enjoyment and there's such understanding and respect that it compels us all to be good stewards in how we use the park um, to the highest possible enjoyment uh, that we can have. And it's natural, it's scenic, it's cultural, it's recreational. 
Um, and it all plays out in all 585 acres today. And so to me, that's the most exciting thing that, yes, it's a, a masterpiece of landscape architecture. And, you know, we can line up all of the Olmsted and Vox scholars and they can tell us why it is such a significant work. But um, today it is important because we get to see ourselves in this place. We get to use it. And we also get to know that there is no place like it. And, um, you know, that to me is it puts us within this larger palimpsest that I began with, this larger cultural story that uh, we get to be a part of. And especially for those people that live close by, if they choose to, they get to be a part of it every day. So, um, you know, I would say the only thing that I would say other than um, that has been changing is I think, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, if you were a tourist going to New York City and, you know, you were going to the Metropolitan and you were going to Central Park and, you know, these days you're going to the High Line. I think because of what's happened with Brooklyn as this kind of um, cultural destination, what I think is exciting is that there are all new audiences of people who are now being exposed to the park and seeing it for the, the masterpiece, the, the internationally celebrated masterpiece that it, it should be, and it, and it absolutely is worthy of being. As we mentioned before we started that interview, and as Charles also alluded to as he was speaking, he worked at Prospect Park for a while in the 1980s. Uh, and so next up, he'll talk a little bit about the efforts that restored the park in the last 30 years. But before we get to that, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. We are going to pick right up with Charles's insight into the work of Christian Zimmerman and Tupper Thomas, as well as others who have been key figures in reinvigorating Brooklyn's Prospect Park. Well, you know, for me, what I think is so interesting is that the story of any great landscape has the story of great patrons. And a patron can be someone who's philanthropic, um, that writes a big check. And, you know, the Lakeside Center, for example, in Prospect Park is the benefit of, of that kind of patronage. It couldn't have been done without those individuals that um, allowed such a magnificent work of design between Todd and Billy and the Prospect Park Alliance under Christian Zimmerman to happen. But, you know, patronage is also about um, being um, passionate, having a political acumen, and that person can be at a municipal level in the same way that Stranahan was, who was a patron and um, enabler for Olmsted and Vox when the park was created. But it can also be someone like Tupper Thomas. And as someone who had the good fortune of working with Tupper in the 80s and then um, have followed her work both um, for, you know, for several decades at the Alliance and then her role as an ambassador for the importance of great parks uh, throughout the U.S. Uh, what's remarkable to me when I think back to those early days at the Alliance, when it, you know, it was kind of a spit and glue operation when it first started, um, that when you see someone like Tupper who comes with a geography background, for her to actually um, straddle the bureaucracy of New York City um, when when this was all starting, um, you know, and remember this was not New York City; it didn't have um the 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 political capital and the the well the wealthy neighbors that central park had when it first started and 
I think that what Tupper was able to achieve is um, it's it's not just the story of the park that we all get to enjoy today. It was actually building the alliance itself. And then when you see people like Christian Zimmerman, who, you know, I remember when he first started as an intern in the park, and to see the work that he's done alongside um, as a landscape architect uh, working on, on the Lakeside um, project, um, I, I think it's just one of the most magnificent uh, rehabilitations of an urban park in the U.S. in the last decade. And I think it's because it recaptured um, those inherent qualities of what Olmsted and Vox had intended that had been eradicated during the Robert Moses era. But then also, um, hand in glove, you have Todd Williams and Billy Tsein then working on a building that is thoroughly modern and is seamlessly inserted into a landscape that had been uh, denuded, that had been diminished, both in terms of its historic and cultural and ecological values. And I think it's an exemplar. And it is because of Tupper's initial leadership and vision that established the tone for that park. And it's the work that then, several decades later, that someone like Christian gets to work both inside uh, the Alliance in concert with world-class architects to create something that is um, appropriate uh, for a world-class masterpiece work of landscape architecture. Next up, I got to chat with Christian Zimmerman, who Charles mentioned. And Christian is the Prospect Park Alliance's Vice President of Capital and Landscape Management. In this interview, he not only told Holly what his job is, but he also spoke about how the Alliance's team has approached their work on revitalizing this park while also remaining mindful of its rich history. So first off, will you tell us exactly what a Capital and Landscape Vice President does? Well, the simple answer is I oversee everything blue, green, and being built. <laughs> um, the longer answer is I oversee um, all design and construction for the park. So I have a team of architects, landscape architects that do that work. And then I also oversee horticulture, turf, um, the landscape management division, if you will, that has natural resources crew as well as arboriculture. And they deal with the water. So you can see why I say blue, green and being built. Yeah, I, I actually think that's a pretty good, succinct and fairly clear way to, to answer that question. Uh, and you have been with the park for a while. And when you joined it, it was in really serious need of renovation. So I wonder how much you looked at its initial designs and various phases of design history in determining your plans for its future at that point. Yeah, so I started in 1990. And when I came here, we didn't have a lot of information. There were some annual reports um, and large-scale drawings. But one of the first things that I was hired to do was to, uh, with two other people, is to research and try and collect as much information on the park that was possible. So we went to the Library of Congress in D.C., and we went up to Brookline, Massachusetts, which is where Olmsted's office and home was, and it's a national park, and and just tried to cull through all of that and see what we had for the park. So the idea was really just doing a deep dive into understanding what Prospect Park was, um, its historical significance, and what remained and what had changed. 
And have there been any times in your ongoing work, particularly since you did do so much research, where some design element or idea from early in the park's history has struck you as particularly surprising or innovative? Um, you know, there are a lot of little gems in the park that that um, surprise me when you when I walk around. One of them, and it's not so obvious, but if you there's a bridge called Rock Arch Bridge. It's a tiny little bridge we restored um, in the ravine that had there were about nine feet of sediment that came in and just filled in this water course. And we uncovered this bridge, and there's this tiny little opening where the water would flow through. And that in itself isn't um, so interesting, but depending on when you walk on the path, so like early in the morning when the sunrise is coming from the east, um, the the light shining through that tiny little opening it just glows it makes the the watercourse glow and um that had to be kind of pur- purposeful how they oriented that bridge um and that works the same way in sunset if you come from in the other direction so there's interesting things like that uh that's really lovely now that's like I, a thing i have to do when i'm in new york next <laughs> like get it's up really get up very it's- early and go to prospect park are there any elements of the original landscape design for the park that you have maybe wanted to work on, but they just aren't really possible to recreate today or aren't sustainable today? There was always a proposal about the original design, actually up to 1874, when they quit working on the park, Olmsted and Vox. Um, they proposed a refectory, a big dining hall in the middle of the park, and they really wanted that to be built. And that never was built. And we couldn't do that now because... In its place is a large bridge that Calvert Box had designed, so it just it would be an awkward <laughs> thing to do. Just can't put a dining hall on top of a bridge. Um, you know, there's that. I'd love to build the dairy. We had a dairy, like Central Park has its dairy uh-huh. in the middle of the woods, but that would be very difficult to do these days. Um, just in access, right? It's a it's a woods now. So we'd have to cut down a lot of trees, and we don't really want to do that. Yeah, I have to wonder. You you uh, make me think about whether or not there are things that are on your wish list that you think are possible that you're free to share with us, or if that's all off limits until things get approved. Oh no, I have a I have a laundry list. I think <laughs> I have about a hundred eighty million dollars of capital easily. Um, there are a number of structures I'd like to bring back. There was this thatch shelter that sat up. Um, near Grand Army Plaza, this beautiful little structure. They had these dotted all throughout the park. And then these, um, what were called summer houses. There were these four rustic shelters along the lake. We've only recreated one, and it would be nice to bring the other three back. Oh, that's lovely. Do you have a favorite uh, of the projects that you've done already that you're especially proud of in terms of of bringing back the, the park's historic intent? Um, it would be the ravine restoration. Yeah. That's bringing back the watercourse. So where we reconstructed actually the ravine and to the bin and water, um, three waterfalls, these ponds, stream, um, just this, it's a beautiful watercourse. Um, so that's probably, and that's, uh, that's, uh, probably the most, um, special. Um, we followed, you know, we use historic photographs to recreate these waterfalls and um, this watercourse. Um, you know, we'd number everything, um, you know, identify the rocks through the photographs and put them back where they were supposed to be. Some of them had fallen through oh. erosion. 
That's got to be a labor of love at that point, I think, when you're comparing photographs to what you're doing on an ongoing basis. We do a lot of that. <laughs> um, we do a lot of photo reference. So because we don't have the original detail drawings. Right. We only have the large scale plans. So we read the annual reports where it'll say when you're reconstructing a bridge that it was a you know, 25-foot-long bridge, 16 feet wide, and um, made of black locust. And then you look at the pictures. <laughs> that's uh, kind of it. That's sort of like a, a great uh, puzzle work, though, I would think. Um, and I have to wonder, is your planning updates to areas of the property? Because I know you obviously have to do it in phases. It's not like you do everything at once. Uh, but I wonder how you're balancing honoring the park's past with also honoring the needs of Brooklyn's modern residents? We're, you know, we constantly do that. Obviously, you know, we have playgrounds in the park. Playgrounds, I mean, there was a playground. It's different than what we consider a playground um, on the north end. But, you know, modern playgrounds didn't really, weren't part of the original design. So we're not getting rid of playgrounds. So, right. um, that's um, what's kind of interesting is most of the intrusions or the um, changes to the park mm-hmm. from the historic are along the perimeter and on the outside of the park drive. Um, there are some buildings inside the park, but for the most part, it's a pretty intact design from the Olmsted and Vox period. And what I'm finding is that it it is because of the park of its size. It's very accommodating to modern interventions. Um, you know, we have ball fields on the Long Meadow. We're not going to get rid of them, and we're redoing them. But it's the brilliance of the design. It it just kind of absorbs new things and just makes it a part of the park's design. So the idea for us is to, um, as I say, and what Olmsted really believed in is he didn't want objects on the landscape. He wanted everything to be within. It was all a single piece. So if you think of a painting, um, it all blended together as opposed to things dotting on top of it. So like a diamond ring on your finger. Everything just is a singular composition. Oh, that's lovely. Uh and then finally, what do you hope as you know the park is celebrating its big milestone anniversary this year? What do you hope that historians 150 years from now are writing about the park's landscape? I'm hoping that the period that I've been a part of that they they see that as that we've done well and that we honored the original design without keeping it so precious that we didn't allow the park to evolve. We you know we let it evolve. Um, it is a living, breathing landscape, but that they see that as as our modern interventions um, were done elegantly and in keeping with the original intent of accommodating, you know, large masses of people. That bridge description that he gave really did put Prospect Park at sunrise on my list of things that I'm going to do next time I'm in New York, if I can manage it in any way, because it sounds really beautiful. Our last interview is with Tupper Thomas, who is often credited with saving Prospect Park. We'll talk to her about taking on this daunting task of trying to turn this massive, dilapidated park around. But first, we're going to pause for one more quick sponsor break. (laughs) 
Alrighty, we will pick right up with Tupper, who shares her knowledge gleaned from three decades of work with the Prospect Park Alliance with us. So first I have to ask you, did you know about the long history of Prospect Park before you became the founding president of the Prospect Park Alliance? So um, I actually was first uh, the first administrator for Prospect Park reporting to the Parks Department. So I started that in 1980 with the plan that we would form something like what we did, which was the Prospect Park Alliance. But before I started as the administrator, I didn't even know that you didn't spell Olmsted with an A, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So I had uh, I had actually taken a course in urban planning and had a a background in Olmsted, but I misspelled it throughout the entire course and nobody corrected it. But um, but I did know the importance of Olmsted in Brooklyn uh, because of Eastern Parkway and the park, but. That's really all that I knew uh, when I got started, and uh, I also didn't really know an oak from an, um, a maple tree. Uh, my background was government and red tape and how to get rid of it and things like that and community outreach work. So it was uh, very exciting to learn the history, uh, and by the time we started the alliance in uh, seven years later, uh, I was uh, steeped in the Olmsted and Vox uh, histories of the park. And you ended up helming a rather historic private-public partnership when you began with the Alliance. Will you tell us about sort of how that came together and how it ended up existing? Yes. Uh, so the um, Central Park Conservancy had been the first such animal uh, to be created, and that had started in 1981. And uh, that was the first time that uh, a, a park actually became something you could give money to, like a museum or a garden, where you actually brought the private sector in to help bring in money. And having it in Central Park made lots of sense to people that sort of put the idea out there. But to create that sort of an institution in Brooklyn was uh, a little more complicated. Uh, we uh, we had really had to think about who would be on that board, who would really represent it. And even the name was really a significant issue for uh, Henry Christensen, who became our chair, and I, too, to grapple with. Because Brooklyn was a very different place was not the in spot that all of everybody's children go to live in now. It was the spot where your grandmother used to live. <laughs> and uh, so uh, really trying to create something that felt more like Brooklyn, we we called it the Prospect Park Alliance and the uh, versus the Conservancy because it really was an alliance of the public sector the private sector and the community uh, all working together. So uh, we we really took a while to get it going. It took me four years just to find Henry Christensen, which was a complicated thing, but to find somebody who would chair this entity, who was from Brooklyn, who uh, who had enough contacts and things that he could really bring in and raise money, and to put together, and then he and I 
from 1984 to 87 had to put together a board. And so that was, it was a much longer process than would normally be taken. But it showed people across the country that it could be done not just in the middle of Manhattan, in the, you know, wealthiest section of the, of the world, but uh, could be done in places like Brooklyn and then Pittsburgh and so on and so forth. So we really sort of showed people that you could do such a thing. Um, and you could create that uh, out of um, in a neighborhood that was not necessarily the the wealthiest community in the in the country. And I think I read somewhere uh, an interview with you where you had said like one of the trickiest things was integrating the team in terms of people who had come from the the private yes. sector and the public sector. Yeah. So a, a public private partnership is is not necessarily comfortable. Um, it, it, it means you've got city government people and you've got uh, the not-for-profit staff. So the not-for-profit staff tend to be paid a little less and they don't have permanent jobs. Um, and they're very enthusiastic, uh, but they move around. You know, they don't stay with you all the time. And then the parks department staff were actually very dedicated people who loved actually working in Prospect Park. You, you could transfer out if you didn't want to be in Prospect Park. Um, and, but to be in the park in a sort of that sort of situation meant that you had people who really wanted to work and wanted to to produce a beautiful park. But there was an attitude difference between the two of them, and it took really two or three years of little meetings and special events and different kinds of parties and retreats and that sort of thing to get people to understand that both sets of people really wanted the park to be a great place. And so uh, it it was uh, probably one of the most complicated uh, processes. And we were helped along by a number of wonderful uh, organizations like the Fund for the City of New York, who... uh, helped us get over that, <laughs> that barrier. So it was, uh, it was a, a very interesting part of the process, which I don't think exists as a problem in Prospect Park anymore. And then, of course, it became the, the not-for-profit side of this and the ability to raise private dollars in a public park really meant that we could do special programming. We could hire people who could do special things that the city couldn't necessarily do. So a, a huge, you know, pretty big natural resources crew or programs in the buildings that we had just restored. But we really had a very big commitment from government uh, to get that going. It was a, a significant amount of money was given to us right off the bat. So we knew that we had the ability to get things done from government because I think otherwise the private sector wouldn't have felt so comfortable uh, starting to put money in. And so when you first took on this massive project of restoring the park at a time when it was really in a pretty rough state uh, and you have assembled this team, what was really the biggest obstacle after that? The biggest obstacle was really actually getting people to return to the park. It was a beautiful piece of landscape that had simply been allowed to uh, fall apart. The buildings were shot. They were all 
almost every building in the park was closed. Um, and so we gave, we had the capital dollars just to do this work uh, given by the city for the basics, you know, fix up the building and do this and do that and start doing some landscape work. But we didn't have the public. So it was a totally opposite from the Central Park experience where they had billions of people coming and just going all over in the park and, and running it down. We had nobody in the park. And they were there was fear and crime. And so the issues were much more um, uh, not the obtaining of the initial capital money, which we got really in 1980, we got. $10 million, which was a lot of money then, uh, to get started. And then every year we had a commitment first from the Koch administration and then Giuliani and then, I mean, Dinkins and Giuliani. So we always were getting very good capital dollars to restore things from government. But what we needed to do is get people to come to the park, enjoy the park, and then become involved, become volunteers, become fundraisers, become all of these other things so that you could bring a real public. But we only had um, a a little over a million people uh, visits a year in the first year. And, you know, now we're way over 10 million. So uh, it was a big, big difference in the issues that Prosser Park faces now versus what we were facing then was very different. So the perception of crime uh, and the uh, fact that people had stopped going to the park and stopped building traditions uh, around the park. Uh, And it took a long time to get that programming going to encourage people to come back. And as part of that, I mean, a park is so central to the identity of the place in which it exists. So I wonder what you think is the park's most important legacy to Brooklyn's history. Well, there's so many, um, there's so many things. First of all, it was, it, it was what brought a great sense of democracy, uh, into Brooklyn in the early days. So that you had this beautiful public space that everyone could use. Every immigrant who arrived or every wealthy merchant, uh, it was just available and there and it, created senses of community from all the way around uh, the park. It it gave uh, the building of Brooklyn uh, a a very big boost, but it, you know, and it continues to do so today. So it is still the place where no matter how much money you make or what you do, you walk in there and you're just like all the other people. You're having a great time. You're with your family. uh, You're doing all these, uh, things together. So you're, you're really enjoying your, um, your time with the family and within your community, even though the community is enormous around Prospect Park. And now it's becoming larger because people even come from Manhattan uh, to go to Prospect Park. So it's uh, it, because it is so beautiful. Also, it was created at the same time as the museum and then a little later, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Uh, so we have these sort of cultural hub right there of the garden, the park, the museum, the zoo, 
just a little ways away, the Children's Museum, the Brooklyn Public Library. So it created this place. And one of the things that we noticed uh, with great happiness is when Arnold Lehman came to the Brooklyn Museum, he changed the way the museum described itself by saying that it was next to Prospect Park. Now, that never would have happened in 1980. (laughs) No one would ever have said, oh, and we're right next to Prospect Park. They would have said, oh, God, we're right next to Prospect Park. (laughs) And, you know, the other thing that we noticed is uh, suddenly when you were selling your house, you know, the advertisement would always say only a few blocks from Prospect Park or right next to Prospect Park. And... So that's when we realized that the park was now an asset in the borough. Uh, But I think that's why uh, Howard Golden, the borough president, many, you know, in the 1980s and just before that, put a big investment of capital money into the park because, you know, he had known the park back in the day when it was great and, uh, and had a positive impact, and then he had known it without that. So I think we've got an even more positive impact than we ever have had before. You know, in the 2000s, we had really um, hit our mark with 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 coming back, but then going forward, I think we're probably the park is very influential on very many neighborhoods now. And since the park is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year, I wonder what you hope historians 150 years from now will write about the park. Yes, I love that question. So 150 uh, years ago, you know, what did people think? This design that Olmsted and Bach came up with is shockingly flexible, that it has lasted this 150 years with people being able to enjoy it in the ways that people of the 1860s and the ways of the people in 2017 use it in very different ways, but it's totally used. So the passive, the ability to just walk in beauty and relax and feel it's all yours is still there for people. But they can also play ultimate frisbee versus tennis in the long net. You know, <laughs> there were just very different different activities that went on in uh, in the 1800s and now. So my hope would be that in 150 years they would be saying, "Well, it was great that they formed this Prospect Park Alliance because." it's really meant that the park never had to go downhill the way it did several times in the first 150 years. It has stayed consistently fabulous all of this time for this 150 and is still so flexible in its design that it accommodates the people of uh, the 22nd century.
Uh, that flexibility of the park space is not something I really would have thought about before talking with Tupper, but it really does speak to the elegance of its design really from day one. So we want to wish Prospect Park a very happy 150th anniversary. If you're in the Brooklyn area, you can check out prospectpark.org to see everything that the park has to offer uh, and the events that are scheduled there. Our deepest gratitude to Charles Birnbaum, Christian Zimmerman, and Tupper Thomas for taking time to speak with us about this amazing piece of what's really living history. And again, if you would like to check out the work that Charles does with the Cultural Landscape Foundation, including their city guides, you can visit tclf.org. That website offers a lot of really fun rabbit holes to explore. Oh, they do programs all over North America where they kind of uh, give people an opportunity to learn about the the landscapes and the the public spaces and the architecture that they live around all the time and maybe don't look at. It's a really cool foundation. Uh, and you can also, of course, visit uh, Prospect Park at prospectpark.org. As we said, there's a kajillion things that you could do there. And it's a big, beautiful space. You also have some listener mail for us. I do. Uh, it's kind of a short version of listener mail uh, because this episode runs a little bit long. But we got a, an actual piece of mail mail from our listener, D, And D wanted to request an episode uh, because she is a descendant of a person who survived the Sultana disaster. And she wanted us to do an episode on it. Um, and I felt a little bit bad because she wrote us this very long letter and it's very impassioned with a lot of information. But uh, we have actually already done an episode on the Sultana, I think almost three years ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Uh, so I, I just wanted to use this as kind of an opportunity to remind people you can actually search our website anytime. Uh, and you will find out if we have back episodes on a thing. Tracy has really been kind of, uh, this amazing driving force in getting all of our older episodes that were before she and I were working on this podcast tagged properly so that search will bring up things when you're actually looking for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and the Sultana is definitely one that comes up. Uh, we do get a lot of questions about whether we have an episode on a particular thing, um, or suggestions for episodes that we already have. And uh, a thing that I think listeners might not realize who let me stress how much we love our listeners and we love hearing for you. I get the answer to that question by searching and you can just cut out that middleman. <laughs> like you do not have to wait for my sorry behind to find a link because uh, everything's searchable on our website. You can also Google uh, the the name of the episode and the words missed in history and that'll bring stuff up. Um and we have a an archive page that lists every single episode, which is a thing I turn to a lot uh, to to get the links to episodes when folks ask. Yeah. So uh, stuff is easily searchable. You can find it, especially, like I said, now that it's got more robust tagging that will allow easier finding of things. Yeah. We are always, always adding to that also. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. We've uh, gotten, so, so the good uh, news, D, is that we've answered your request uh, in the past. With a time machine. Yeah, completely. <laughs> if you would like to write to us, you could do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History, and you can ask questions or, or submit requests that way. Uh, you can visit us at our website, which is mistinhistory.com. That's the one we were just talking about, being searchable. Uh, you can also visit our parent site, which is howstuffworks.com, and uh, type in almost anything you're curious to learn about in the search bar, and you will 
get undoubtedly a wealth of information. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com where we have episodes of every show ever, as well as show notes, which now Tracy mentioned earlier are consolidated as part of the show page. They're no longer two separate pages. Uh, and uh, you can visit our parent site, howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 